So hello everyone and welcome to our annual LSE Europe in Question Discussion Paper Series annual lecture. Uh, six political philosophies in search of a virus, critical perspectives on the coronavirus pandemic. My name is Cristóbal Garibay Peterson. I am a fellow of European philosophy at the London School of Economics European Institute. And I am very pleased to be chairing this event today and pleased to welcome our panel. Our guest speaker is Professor Gerard Delanti, who is a professor of sociology and social and political thought at the University of Sussex, Brighton. His most recent publication is Critical Theory and Social Transformation from 2020. But as many of you know, other publications that he's done include The Cosmopolitan Imagination, Formations of European Modernity, Community, The European Heritage, A Critical Reinterpretation, and Inventing Europe, amongst others. He has edited several volumes, including the Rutledge International Handbook of Cosmopolitan Studies, and with Stephen P. Turner, the Rutledge Handbook of Contemporary Social and Political Theory. He is also the editor. Uh, the chief editor of the European Journal of Social Theory. Our discussant today is Dr. Sonia Avlias. Uh, she's a research associate at the Laboratory for Interdisciplinary Evaluation of Public Policies in, Science, in Sciences Po, Paris, and research associate at the Institute for Economic Sciences in Belgrade. She is also the 2020 Wayne Vucinic Fellow at Stanford University and the 2020-2022 Marie Sklodowska Curie Fellow at Belgrade University's Faculty uh, of Economics. So for those uh, Twitter users in the audience, I, uh, I just want to make you know that the, has the hashtag for today's event is LSE COVID-19. Uh, all together, and that this this online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast. Uh, that yeah, hopefully won't have any technical difficulties. Uh, as usual, there will be the chance for you to put questions to the panel. To submit your questions, please use the Q and A feature uh, of Zoom at the at the bottom of your screen. Uh, questions will be submitted to myself. I will then pose as many as I can uh, to to the speaker. And if you could please uh, provide your name and affiliation, right? Uh, that'd be great. Uh, we are keen to hear from our students currently in the LSC and in the European Institute, uh, but also from alumni and incoming students. So please, yeah. Feel free to ask uh, your questions. Uh, so now I am delighted to hand over to Professor Bellanti, who will begin with our event. Thank you very much uh, for for that introduction, Christabel, and for uh, inviting me to uh, give this uh, talk. And I'm looking forward very much to the uh, discussion that that will. Uh, follow and um, thanks to your colleagues for, um, for for helping to set up this uh, this event. Yeah, so I'm going to talk uh, around the paper that I've written. I'll try to uh, sum up the arguments that I've made uh, in in this paper, which um, essentially I'm trying to look at the debates around the 
current pan- pandemic, you know, through the lens, as it were, of modern political uh, philosophy. Uh, so, yeah, I, I see six responses to the current pandemic. And, yeah, as I said my aim is to uh, try to say something about the current situation from a philosophical uh, perspective. Now, uh, this all really began with a number of philosophers, uh, Italian and uh, French philosophers, principally, and Gambon, uh, picking up on Foucault's famous uh, uh, classic, uh, actually fascinating discussion uh, on the analysis of plagues and, um, and, and, and confinement in, in discipline and punish in, in 1975, at uh, the beginning of, of chapter uh, three of, of that book. Uh, and basically, this old Foucauldian perspective sees a, a new authoritarian regime of governance taking shape. And while Agamben has highlighted the spectre of biopolitical securitization, I actually began this paper by trying to uh, quickly engage with this perspective. Uh, but in doing so, uh, I it came, well, it sort of came to me that there are, in fact, a whole range of other philosophical positions. And I've, I, I've um, identified six, which I think all together need to be brought into the, into the picture. Yeah, so I should try to show here that the pandemic raises fundamental philosophical questions concerning the political and ethical responsibility of the state. Uh, and the way we look at these questions is very much influenced by philosophical positions themselves. And in many cases, philosophical ideas have actually entered into the politics of the uh, pandemic, especially uh, in Germany. And I mentioned uh, some uh, something uh, in relation to that in a moment. Now, the first position uh, is surely utilitarianism. It's not actually dis- discussed, uh, um, it seems, at all uh, in the current context, but it seems to me that the initial response of the UK government, um, pretty similar response in the Netherlands, and perhaps the response that was finally embraced in Sweden, uh, corresponds basically to... Uh, the um, the ideas of classic classical utilitarianism. Uh, this has been, of course, much ridiculed um, with respect to the now notorious idea of herd immunity. Of course, a well-established concept in uh, epidemiological science, but uh, the initial critique was um, that well, it was a form of social Darwinism. I think that's to misunderstand. Uh, the uh, the utilitarian presuppositions uh, of it, which too are not to be equated with material gain, as uh, is often thought. Well, the basic premise of utilitarianism, as I understand it, is that the greatest good should always be sought after. This may uh, demand that the ends justify the means, but it's generally understood, uh, like if we take the writings of Peter Singer, that one's interest is not greater than the interests of the greatest number but as a practical philosophy, and it is a practical philosophy, you need to be able to command the required means uh, to achieve the desired end. And that's where things uh, do get complicated. So is the desired end the elimination of the disease, which uh, I believe is impossible in the absence of a vaccine, or the best possible outcome for the majority of people, um, perhaps some kind of natural immunity or just flattening the curve? So herd immunity... Uh, just to take that as uh, an instance here, became, it became f- fairly clear quickly. Uh, it could be both a means and an end, but the reality is that it does not work as an, 
as a means to the end, due to the extent of the death rate that apparently would have to be tolerated. Now, utilitarianism, the thing about it is that it always leads to disadvantages for some. The question, of course, is who are uh, the, the um, people in question? If these disadvantages are not great, it may be the only way to achieve a desirable societal goal. It also requires what is not available in many instances, complete knowledge of the relevant uh, facts and a limited time uh, frame in which to uh, respond. This uh, presumably boils down to mass testing, the absence of which means decisions have to be made quickly without complete knowledge. So uh, perhaps one could say uh, the failure of utilitarianism in the UK in March 2020 is less a failure of utilitarian philosophy than a failure of the politics and of the uh, and and of science. So that seems to be one place to to begin to discuss some responses in terms of the ideas of classical utilitarianism, uh, a, um, a philosophy that for some is a term of abuse. Uh, I I'm not a utilitarian myself, but I I think uh, it it is quite an important practical philosophy, making sense of these sort of uh, challenges. Uh, now, what, what is the sort of the natural alternative? Um, uh, I think it's what I call here the Kantian alternative, uh, the alternative to utilitarianism. There's an, an influential body of thought, uh, especially in in Germany, but not necessarily. I think it's represented in the philosophy of John Rawls uh, that goes back to Immanuel Kant that would posit the centrality of human dignity instead of admittedly, uh, often elusive common good. Uh, that's the basis of utilitarianism. Uh, now, in a recent interview and also in a subsequent um, interview uh, in, in two different German un- newspapers, Jürgen Habermas, who is perhaps the leading political philosopher in the world today, asserted the Kantian principle when he said, I, I quote Habermas here, uh, uh, the, the efforts of the state to save every single human life must have absolute priority over a utilitarian offsetting of the undesirable economic costs. Uh, perhaps he slightly misrepresented utilitarianism in that sentence, but the key thing, uh, invoking the Kantian principle of, uh, of the absolute superiority of human dignity over other things of the common good. Now, on this view, the dignity of the individual person is the overriding normative force in determining concrete policies, uh, even if it is very unclear what these actually might be. So the Kantian standpoint opposes the utilitarian position and not appealing to the common interest, uh, the maxim that the end justifies the means, since this might not be compatible uh, with respect for the the individual, for, uh, for, for human dignity. Uh, to take the extreme scenario, the Kantian position would require the state to save the lives of those who may be uh, too will to be saved, even if this meant resources may be unavailable to the, those who could be saved. Uh, but the state must nonetheless try. Uh, so I think there's a clear difference between the utilitarian and the Kantian responses, uh, both indirectly or operative, if not exp- uh, explicitly in current responses to uh, the to to uh, COVID nineteen either as policies or as uh, in the case of the Kantian position uh, critiques of policies uh, and there are compelling arguments for either perhaps the advantage of the Kantian position is that it doesn't put a price on the life of a person or seek to give it a weighting in order to reach the higher goal of 
uh, of the common interest being realized. On the other side, the utilitarian saving um, some lives may not be enough, so why not save as many lives as possible? In any case, I would argue that despite the rising debt toll, the appeal to human dignity on its own is probably not enough. Uh, the current approach uh, to the pandemic, insofar as it's guided by human dignity, does not give sufficient recognition to the question of livelihoods and other problems that lockdown presents. So people can die as a result of the economic consequences of the uh, pandemic, but they're not included in the in the um, in the reckoning of deaths. Dignity reduced to the right to life is not a solution, in my view, as it, as is evidenced by the shocking death rate in care homes. Uh, uh, quite aside from other examples, such as the neglect of patients with other serious illnesses and people living in extremely confined spaces, uh, prisoners, for example. Uh, and one, one could add to the list the shocking rise in domestic abuse and mental health that lockdown has created, especially in countries such as Spain, where it's been taken to an extreme level on, of uh, confinement. The, the paper uh, was, was written in, uh, in, in um, Barcelona, in, where I've been on research leave uh, this, this half year. Uh, a pretty severe lockdown, perhaps the most severe one in, in Europe. The, anyway, the conflict between these positions ultimately in practice will resolve around concrete policies and striking a balance between controlling the pandemic, managing the economic consequences, as well as the, uh, the undesirable social costs rather than the pursuit of abstract aspirations. Even if we disagree on the ends, we may agree on practical policies that could, if successfully applied, deliver satisfactory outcomes, slowing down the spread of the pandemic, for instance. But this is where another problem arises. The, as I've mentioned, the negative consequences arriving, arising from the means that many governments have decided on in order to achieve their aims. And that we'll never actually know what those consequences were with respect to the means in question. Uh, there's a third uh, philosophical position. I'll have to move on quickly to it. And uh, it's got more, um, more representation in the media uh, uh, especially in the United States, and that, well, I guess not too surprisingly, is libertarianism. The measures employed by many governments to combat the pandemic from a libertarian perspective encroach on personal freedom too much. For libertarians, there's nothing more sacred than the liberty of the individual, not human dignity, nor the common, common good. Enforced social distancing might be accommodated in this, um, in this uh, philosophical position, but lockdown is a remedy uh, worse than the disease. And even from a moderate libertarian perspective, the, re the reduction of the death rate, uh, which might be desirable, doesn't justify extreme restrictions on, on the freedom of the individual, uh, where these involve the removal or, uh, or, or the restriction of rights previously enjoyed. And for extreme libertarians, deaths, uh, as someone has said, uh, is preferable to the loss uh, of freedom. There's kind of an, an irony there that I uh, won't go into. Libertarians, not too surprisingly, feel uncomfortable with the uh, current situation because it forces them, and of course many of them are real libertarians, to face the, um, the, the paradoxical uh, um, uh, consequences of their position, which often is not fundamentally different from what radical right group radical right-wing groups, especially in the United States, including Trump, one, namely, the, uh, the, namely to stop all forms of confinement uh, for whatever reason. 
Uh, so libertarians may be selfish, most of them would admit that, and have nothing to contribute to collective solutions. Uh, but uh, still, uh, one can say they have a point in drawing attention to the problem of liberty, where the limits of state power uh, should be drawn. Since the outbreak of the, uh, of the pandemic in China in, in December uh, 2019, states throughout the world have imposed far-reaching curbs on the liberty of individuals. Uh, first, like many people, I thought uh, this could be possible only in, in a dictatorship, but now the liberal democracies uh, of the Western world were, were all uh, doing it and have, to a large degree, uh, public support, which, of course, uh, doesn't last forever. Yeah, states of emergency have been declared in, in many democracies, ostensibly to protect the elderly, despite creating a range of other problems, uh, for, for example, for children. Uh, what at first seemed possible only in a dictation has now become really normalised in constitutional liberal democracies. Uh, in Spain, children have been locked indoors for over 60 days, uh, for example. The political and moral philosophies now that I've just discussed, which are, I suppose, really the kind of classic ones, libertarianism, utilitarianism, and uh, the Kantian position, uh, have something to, I hope, I think, something to say about the current situation, and it's also influenced thinking. Uh, but there's a need for more critical approaches than the lament for lost liberty or the cry of human dignity. Now, um, from the perspective of political philosophy and social theory, current developments uh, point uh, in the direction of a new order of governance, close to what uh, Agamben calls the permanent state of exemption. So this fourth response, uh, uh, which can be seen as a critique of the other ones, as well as being something different, though in some ways it runs quite close to the libertarian one, but it's fundamentally different, uh, is basically the Foucauldian one that I mentioned earlier, uh, following the footsteps of Foucault's um, uh, analysis of, of the surveillance of space that arose with modernity uh, in, in Discipline and Punish, as I mentioned, he introduced this famous notion uh, of, um, of panoptism with a discussion of disciplinary mechanisms that were cre created in the late 17th century to control uh, plagues. Uh, the Foucauldian theme of biopolitical securitization has been taken up by several thinkers, most notably Gembern, uh, in the context of um, an attempt to make sense of the state of emergency, of, of new states of emergency, in this case, uh, the Italian one back in March. And it led to a debate amongst Italian and French philosophers. Now, for Agamben, the use of, the, of a state of exemption as a normal paradigm uh, for government is deeply worrying. It leads to the militarization of the polity, and the, um, it seems um, we might have to qualify that now, the indefinite extension of the state of exemption. Uh, it certainly was the case in Spain and, and, and in Italy, and of course, who knows, it may return, it's already returned in a partial form in China. So it creates for Gambon a, a generalised condition of fear uh, and anxiety amongst, amongst individuals. Now, responses to Gambon, his contribution in a way was some, somewhat less than serious. His original essay was called The Invention of the Pandemic. Um, which, of course, I think one shouldn't take literally, didn't mean it was literally an invention. Is the state really using the pandemic to create a permanent sanitary uh, dictatorship, a state of exemption? Probably not. Uh, I don't think, uh, the, the, for example, the Italian and Spanish states seem uh, incapable 
uh, of uh, even basic, basic governance at times, let alone creating a sanitary dictatorship. I think that is probably the uh, wrong reading of the uh, of the um, situation. Europe's extreme lockdown in Spain was implemented by a socialist government with progressive politics uh, and widespread public support. It's true too that many governments have persisted have resisted the opportunity to uh, resort to extreme measures of biopolitical securitization that might follow from Foucault's um, uh, famous analysis and Gambin's interpretation. Uh, and there is the basic conflict between state power and capitalism, since both are not compatible and capitalism uh, needs, uh, uh, need, needs liberty, as Foucault was also aware of um, or, or when he changed his mind on that uh, subject in his uh, later writings. However, there are clear trends that point to the rapid expansion of militarized forms of surveillance that cannot be fully accounted for as necessary measures to control the pandemic. While Agamben may have exaggerated the, the, the political instrumentalization of the pandemic as a case of an opportunity too good to lose, the important point he makes is that the state of exemption, uh, it, to call it that, is now becoming the new, new normal art of governments. The recent declarations of emergency would enforce lockdowns, uh, must be mistaken for other measures of social distancing and so on, is unprecedented in democracies in the 20th century, at least since the um, 1918 flu. Uh, even if, according to Foucault, such modes of discipline come with modernity, it's difficult to account for uh, such de decrees in terms of utilitarianism. Uh, or in terms of the Kantian concern with human dignity, it's true that confinement imposed by a democratic order is different from that in a dictatorship, but uh, democracies can be capable of authoritarianism, as examples such as Brexit demonstrate. The implications of a perpetual lockdown also go beyond the concerns of libertarianism with personal liberty, for they go to the core of democracy. And libertarians are not anyway, really uh, normally concerned with democracy, only with individual liberties. Democracy, however understood, is based on the centrality of the public and deliberation and cannot, in my view, fare well in a, a pandemic situation with emergency governments at uh, the order of the day and it will be uh, more or less total, total digitalization of public space and perhaps to the digitalization of academic spaces where, uh, as we are, we are now uh, doing. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, I do believe Fagenman has an important critical point to make, even if he has no concrete proposals to make on what an appropriate response to the pandemic should be. Uh, there's certainly an excess of control as always, you know, the, the less well-off uh, fare worse. Governments are now employing digital programs for mobile data, uh, data tracking to enable contact tracing. A whole range of new technologies are, are creating lucrative new markets for the extraction, sale, and analysis of private data. The state of emergency uh, will come to an end. It's already coming to an end in Spain and uh, next week. Uh, but we can assume these states of emergency will come to an end. They might resume. Uh, who knows about that? But I think the technological um, um, uh, consequences of the lockdowns will continue, and state surveillance will also be given a tremendous boost by the current crisis. But what's the alternative? Hardly the proposal uh, of uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil to do uh, nothing. Clearly, states have to do have to do uh, something. 
Now, the answer, um, to answer this question, it seems to me to be essential to bring the perspective of social agency uh, into the picture. Again, Gambin inherited Foucault's weakness in reducing social agency to domination, and that's more complicated than that, but I think it's basically uh, correct. Populations under lockdown conditions, maybe the image of what Foucault initially characterized as the disciplined condition of modernity and you know, lockdown uh, people in lockdown situations probably felt uh, like Foucauldian agents. Uh, but social actors are also active in contesting domination and seeking to subvert control. And I, I find this perspective entirely missing in Ina Gambin's account. Could the coronavirus or, um, uh, open up an alternative social order? It's not only the alt-right who are mobilizing against state surveillance. Uh, I have to move quite quickly to identify uh, I do this uh, very briefly, the fifth position, which I call here simply post-capitalism and radical politics. Uh, Zizek, the um, uh, prominent Slovenian Lacanian philosopher, uh, offers a different and more radical response in a, in a book, uh, a quickly written book uh, uh, to the uh, current situation. Uh, an interesting contrast to uh, Agamben's uh, critical intervention. For him, the choice after the pandemic is, uh, quoting here, barbarism or, or some form of invented communism. Now, he sees an opportunity for the reinvention of, of communism or some kind of an alternative post-capitalist society. The pandemic reveals the virus of capitalism. The current crisis is a call to free ourselves from the tyranny of the, of the market in neoliberalism. Now, governments were suddenly engaging what looks like a major attack on capitalism, uh, with state-sponsored employment for millions of people, and, and uh, at least for a, a short time, uh, it's probably only a short time, a worldwide suspension of consumerism. Uh, capitalism seems to be on hold, at least for now, but for how long and who will benefit in the end? Now, there's much that Zizek agrees on uh, in this uh, with, with Agamben. His conclusions are different. The desire for survival, he thinks, will, will create new bonds of solidarity. So it's very uh, unclear how this will happen. It's hard to imagine that a virus, which is all about separating people, can be a basis for creating bonds. You know, uh, you know. Okay, there's some examples of solidarity: people clapping on balconies in Spain and Italy. Uh, but clapping is also, you know, the um, a herd sentiment and shaming those who don't clap and so on. And and then you know, there's other forms of any um, examples of social shaming going on. Uh, it's yeah, it's true that in the past, major academic uh, pandemics uh, did lead to progressive change. The 1918 flu, uh, misnamed the Spanish flu, uh, led to the creation of national healthcare systems, for instance. The Black Death in the 14th century, which reduced the supply of labor, labor led to improved conditions for workers. Uh, perhaps something positive will come out of it. Uh, so that's. That's broadly maybe the fifth position uh, which associated here with Zizek and um, uh, uh, others. Um, Alan Badiou has also written uh, a very, very interesting aspiring uh, essay on the epidemic uh, condition, perhaps with a slightly more qualified uh, position than uh, Zizek's. But yeah, I think it's unlikely that there be a post-capitalist society emerging, as Zizek seems to be saying, um, even if some kinds of predatory capitalism would be much reduced, but you know, 
Amazon seems to uh, uh, be, be doing well and will survive and prosper. Uh, possibly more pertinent interpretation of the post-capitalist condition is maybe Bruno Latour's intervention and in, uh, fascinating uh, uh, essay in a French uh, newspaper uh, that the whole health crisis may be a, an early sign of a new age of Anthropocene politics uh, because of the coincidence of the current biopolitical securization as well, well with climate change. There's, there's no coincidence that these things are going on at the same time, that the health crisis is occurring at the same time as the ecological crisis is taking on a new urgency. So uh, making these connections, and I'll have to very quickly move on to identifying uh, the, I've gone over my allocated time already, nudge theory. Um, that, and here the UK was um, the, was the, the, briefly the laboratory for this new social philosophy, in part following from the failure of what I've characterized as the utilitarian philosophy of uh, herd immunity, uh, which it also supported with the view that fatigue can quickly set in from a too early implementation of lockdown policies. According to this new and increasingly influential school of thought uh, in, in social science and political science, people do not act rationally. Brexit is proof of this, I think. What we need to understand is the nature of irrationality in order that it can be controlled. Now, such methods of control are not authoritarian as in lockdown policies, but nudges that can be done with the supportive people who believe they're making their own decisions without the heavy hand of the state forcing them. It's, in fact, I think, uh, quite close to Foucault's later notion of discipline as governmentality, uh, which requires liberty for its effectiveness. The interesting thing, though, is, is that in the case of the governance of the pandemic, it was, to, it, it, it was deemed to have not worked since uh, it didn't bring about the changes to behaviour uh, that uh, we're supposed to, to, to follow. However, I suspect we'll probably hear a good deal more about nudge theory. Now, all, all these six philosophies that I've characterised here all too briefly have something to say on the current situation. I think they all have something to... Uh, some light to cast on it. Zizek sees in the present predicament seeds of radical change. Gambon uh, draws attention to declarations of emergency as anti-democratic attempts to render populations basically docile and obedient. Uh, these theories bring important critical perspectives to bear on the older political and moral philosophies that are reflected in utilitarianism, Kantianism and, liber and, and, and uh, libertarianism. Now, in my view, clearly governments need to control the spread of the virus, but more reflection is needed on the degree of militarization that is required to do this successfully and what's really acceptable uh, to a democracy. Simple appeals to liberty are not enough for an alternative, not least as for now lockdowns do have considerable public support. So there's signs that as the peak has now passed, uh, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's changing so if there's a single conclusion uh, to be drawn from these philosophies and critical reflections on them, it's that the pandemic is more than a pathogen that threatens the lives of many people, but democracy is also in danger uh, from the recent experiments with emergency government. These may not result in a permanent state of exemption uh, or the suspension of democracy. Laying aside the Anthropocene scenario of extreme climate change requiring long-term states of emergency, of, of exception uh, that uh, we, we might uh, witness. And the solution is not a simple restoration of individual liberty. Perhaps then more significant in the long term will be 
implications of the new technologies of emergency governments, governance that are now taking place in large-scale societal experimentation uh, with, with the technocratic management of populations in, in rapidly changing uh, circumstances. Uh, so the upshot, it does seem to me, is that governments have acquired, even if they haven't necessarily sought it, considerable technocratic power over their populations, which have been disturbed in the late Foucauldian sense of the term to desire safety over liberty. And apologies for running over the uh, time, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stop at that. Thanks, Gerard. Uh, I will hand it now to Sonia. Uh, to, to issue her, her response, and then we'll move on to, well, first Jared's response to Sonia, and then we'll move on to the Q&A. So, Sonia. Thank you, Cristobal, and uh, thank you, Jared, for a very interesting and thought-provoking paper. It's been um, a pleasure to sort of think about these, um, these different uh, competing views and perspectives. And uh, so, so since I come from the political economy and economics perspective, um, so I'll, I'd like to start perhaps with the observation um, that you mentioned in the paper and also in the talk that, uh, well, the Foucauldian perspective or the biopolitical securitization perspective that people are disciplined to desire safety over liberty. And um, uh, I'm, like, I would like to understand, I guess, better what, uh, discipline by whom and in what sense, in a sense, uh, is it by the state? Because what we uh, and whether we're actually seeing capitalism on hold right now, because uh, because I would perhaps argue from an economics perspective is that we at least partially see what's going on is an intrinsic feature of capitalism. Because when um, when I was thinking about this uh, uh, this sort of trade off, let's say between um, between safety and liberty, uh, it made me think about uh, the Affluent Society, which is a book uh, by J.K. Uh, Galbraith, who was um, now late the Harvard economist who was a liberal and uh, and uh, sort of very influential American um, economist. And he sort of argued that this whole idea that we live in a competitive society is a myth and that we actually are mostly driven by a need to be safe and to sort of preserve what we already have. So in a way, so he, what he says is while in the real world, we are sort of like moved by the sort of uh, push to eliminate insecurity and preserve what we have. Uh, in the ideological realm, we're saying, well, it's actually all about competition and liberty and whatnot. And then he sort of uses the funny example of, of course, university professors of economics, who then uh, see security of tenure, lifetime appointments as something that is a prerequisite for their own fruitful and productive work. But then when it comes to others and this abstract, it's always about, oh, it's actually about liberty and about competition and whatnot. So. So, um, and of course, um, uh, while we see the state which plays or in certain periods of history, I guess, has played more or less time in ensuring safety of the, for the economy for both workers and corporations, uh, we also see that uh, what Galbraith also argues is that the whole rise of the modern corporation has been due to better security and better control of uncertainty. So actually, it's not only or even largely due to competitive forces, but because they've managed to rein in uncertainty and insecurity. And then, like, I guess we can also, like, now, like, shift to even the more modern era, especially since the 2008 crisis, where we see um, a sort of a renewed recognition in academia, but also wider society, that the, the state is not simply sort of withdrawing in this neoliberal era, but it actually underpins it. So apart from social protection, which kind of underpins the growth models of capitalism, we also see a growing recognition that the state acts as a de-risker 
for corporations, let's say. So like Mariana Mazzucato talks about the, the risking role of the state. So it's the state that takes on every risk that the market, that the free market in a way produces, right? So and so and I guess now even from psychology we're beginning to better understand that safety is what also or at least a degree of it allows us to be more productive and more creative. So it's not really only about sort of dog eats dog kind of environment of competition. And um, so I guess uh, so sort of from that perspective I guess it's only very human to protect what one has. And I guess uh, even we've seen in this pandemic, uh, like even arguing that we shouldn't be concerned about safety over liberty is being seen as irresponsible or a form of gamble even, right? So it's sort of like, well, why would we not try to protect what we have? So it's kind of like this desire for material, whether it's monetary or whether it's health related, but physical survival sort of is exactly what also drives the capitalist society, it seems like from this perspective. And uh, so, so I guess for me, I was sort of like, I would like to hear your opinion on uh, what extent can we really talk about this as a trade-off between uh, uh, between safety and liberty, and to what extent we should maybe talk more about how this is being ensured, and what is the role of the state in ensuring this sort of. Uh, uh, that uh, we are better protected or and also like where is the line that we that we are willing to draw to protect ourselves and like at what point does one one once this becomes protection at the expense of somebody else like liberty or safety of somebody else like at what point do we like is this what the ethical role of the state should really be to sort of determine what's okay in a certain society and what isn't how far we're willing to go and I guess this is, I, th I find this particularly relevant because we cannot ignore the power relations. So I guess I'm Foucauldian in that sense that sort of operate in the modern right society and, uh, and the economy as well. So, so some people and also companies and uh, have more power to protect themselves more vigorously than others, but also to lobby the state to protect them more than others, right? So it's not sort of, oh, we protect everybody and then and equally, like there's clearly, and now we've seen, for example, during the pandemic, big, big discussions on state aid at the EU level, and Germany has sort of like taken up a bigger share, like I think the biggest share, 52% of overall state aid uh, is being taken up um, uh, is is uh, is uh, in Germany, and so we see that actually it is the stronger companies and perhaps the stronger states that end up sort of like um, even in, uh, using this sort of safety option even more because they have more to preserve, let's say, or to protect. So at the same time, um, so when you when you have uh, or like we've seen the two thousand eight crisis, the too big to fail argument, you're not going to allow the banks to fail because there's also this sort of problem. So then, from that perspective, can we really see a departure from what we see anyway in terms of the role of the state and how? Uh, whether whether this is really like a sort of a shift from the free free capitalism onto this sort of all of a sudden uh, junk, critical juncture juncture towards a biopolitical securitization, or is in a way biopolitical securitization almost like a natural extension of the sort of uh, the how the state and other actors regulate the downturns of the business cycle that we see in capitalism anyway because when we have a down downturn of course it's the state that intervenes to protect what uh, what needs to be protected and um, and i guess also from that perspective um, uh, this is uh, this is something that i wanted to also draw parallel with the uh, human dignity or the kantian standpoint that you that you uh, that you mentioned because um, 
because then I'm wondering if we live in this highly unequal world where we see a growing sort of ratio of capital over labor, where we see that a bigger power, maybe of corporations to sort of lobby even for government help for themselves in comparison to citizens and also especially the dispossessed citizens. Can we really even talk about human dignity in the abstract? Because what we've seen in the, it's been, it's been interesting to observe in the UK, but also Germany and in other several countries, we've seen that even this lockdown has not only been about sort of this neutral protection of everybody, but there's been people who are mostly at the, at the lower earnings levels that have been sort of underpinning the ability of the society to even go into lockdown. So we've seen Romanian farm workers being flown over to the UK and Germany to work yeah fruits, for example, in comparison to, so, so their safety in a way is not part of the discussion, right? Or their dignity is kind of not part of the discussion. And of course, we can go on to sort of uh, think about other impacts, including uh, um, impact, gender, gendered impact of, uh, of staying at home and sort of like having the state withdraw support in terms of well, schools, kindergarten and everything, and all, all the services that it generally offers. So, so I'm sort of like wondering, um, so, so, so in that sense, I'm, I'm a, in, in a, the, way, the way I think about this human dignity standpoint, and I think this is also what you in a way mentioned in the paper, is that it almost serves to help the safety argument. It's it, 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 in a way overshadow this kind of the inequality, this elephant in the room. So because we, we talk about human dignity, it allows us to obscure the elephant in the room, which is the huge inequality that uh, within which we're, we're discussing all this. And, um, and then I guess from that perspective, which I would, uh, if you feel comfortable commenting on this, uh, the most recent protests that we've seen with the Black Lives Matter and just sort of beyond, uh, to me, in a way, they have not come as a surprise because we've seen sort of like this really hyped increase in protecting the sort of status of certain groups and perhaps at the sort of at the expense of others. Um, maybe a final point that uh, just to sort of make this more clear in terms of like protecting the status of specific groups. In general, we see the welfare states across Europe uh, uh, generally inclined to the protection of the elderly and both like spending is like significantly skewed towards the elderly in comparison to youth, for example, and children. And then here we also see the medical argument that it's about the protection and the vulnerability of the elderly that need to be protected. So there's, there's a, I guess there's a clear distributive profile in the way that the sort of lockdown affects uh, or protects the status of certain groups and sort of also at the expense of others. And um, uh, so, so I'm sort of wondering uh, whether you can help me or perhaps somebody else as well, sort of how to, how to integrate this into these critical perspectives that, uh, that you've presented and whether, whether we can uh, whether we can use them to sort of better understand at what point do we draw a line and what is sort of, uh, at what point do we draw, draw a line in, uh, in terms of ensuring safety of some over others. Um, uh, yeah, so, so I'd like to maybe, uh, maybe I'll, I'm okay with time, yeah, so I can maybe, I'll just wrap up there because I think it'd be interesting to comment on the recent protests and how you see that in light of, uh, like, because especially you've mentioned the social agency and, uh, yes, and, yes. The, uh, and the sort of role of that, whether it is really about domination or whether the social agency then kind of acts as a counter movement, which is able to sort of counteract yeah. some of these, some of these yeah. trends. So, so yeah, I'll stop there. Uh, thank you very much, Sonia, for, for these uh, invaluable comments. Uh, the paper, as I said, was written in uh, the first half of April and 
the, the uh, situation and debates have advanced, and they would certainly need to address uh, some of these things that you said. In the paper, I've tried to confine myself to identifying philosophical positions and looking at at the uh, situation through the lens of those philosophies and at the same time uh, critiquing those uh, those philosophies. And uh, in fact, uh, what, if I were to develop this, and I, I in fact hope to do so, what I would be moving towards would be more of a sociological tr- critique of more political philosophies, because I think all of them are in different ways inadequate. But let me uh, address your, your first point. Uh, I, I think you've made um, yeah, some pretty good remarks here concerning the nature of safety, and one uh, would have to uh, take um, all of this, what you said, more seriously, and not just um, see the desire, the natural desire uh, for safety as something manipulative, which um, basically is uh, what follows from the Foucauldian uh, position and Agamben. Yes, I agree that Safety is inherent in the, well, first of all, in the function, one of the functions of the state is the protection of populations. There's a natural desire for safety. It resides in, in the nature of democracy. And as you've uh, said, it resides in the nature of, uh, of, um, of the welfare state. I think really the key concept here, one, uh, and I just mentioned this, is the notion uh, of democratic capitalism, the idea that capitalism and democracy achieved, at least let's just um, um, put it like that, in, in the case of, West, of Western democracies, a certain balance. And um, that, that balance is falling apart t- today. And it raises the question of, of safety and um, who's going to provide uh, that, that safety. And the pandemic obviously exacerbates this whole problematic of safety and uh, as, and I'm not a Foucauldian uh, scholar, but, uh, just to uh, dispel any uh, any such idea that I might be. And I, I, I think a Foucauldian interpretation is utterly inadequate as regards um, uh, a theorization and understanding of, of, of safety. Uh, so, uh, yes, the notion of safety has to uh, be understood in, in very different uh, terms. Uh, so I suppose that would be one way I would want to see how uh, the current situation could be understood in terms of uh, the unraveling of, of, of safety uh, that seems to be somehow secured by uh, the, um, the uh, alliance or confluence of democracy and capitalism. Of course, it was always a crisis-ridden alliance. And... Um, uh, perhaps that's what's falling apart uh, uh, today and the pandemic exacerbates that. Yeah, so that would be one one response. As regards, um, so was it your second or your third point? Well, let me uh, go to it. Uh, the, what I refer to as the Kantian position. I, I think if I go back to my six philosophies and I had to pick one, and I, I probably would go, I would probably align myself more closely with the Kantian position uh, for a reason I'll explain in, in a moment, there's been an interesting debate uh, in in Germany, uh, most notably in the German newspaper Die Zeit, uh, in uh, beginning of May between uh, Habermas and uh, a major German constitutional uh, philosopher, Klaus Günther, uh, on the um, 
on a reading of the German constitution and the declaration of fundamental rights here. So the, the, the question is, what is the relationship between uh, human dignity, which is stated in the first article of the German constitution as the, as the basic uh, uh, um, value that the state must, must protect, must uphold, vis-à-vis other rights, such as the right to life, which is invoked in the uh, second article of the German constitution, and other rights, the right to freedom, uh, which is mentioned next, and other rights, the right to equality. Uh, so the, the debate here is uh, um, what is the balance between these rights and which one has, um, ha- has, has priority over the others. And, uh, well, the interpretation that I've made of this uh, debate is that all rights, all uh, basic or fundamental rights, the life the right to life, dignity, and other rights such as liberty um, have, have to be balanced with each other. Uh, uh, the digni- human dignity is not just about the protection of life, but about dignified life. Uh, so maybe that's a way uh, to answer the, the criticism that, that you've raised about, you know, which lives, because it does seem that some lives are more valuable than other lives, you know. The lives of uh, of um, of uh, of citizens, the lives of the elderly. Well, what about um, a dignified life for others, like, for example, prisoners or um, the, those with mental problems, children, uh, care workers, like the examples that you've mentioned. So, I th- so the the answer uh, to I think you're um, um, pointing to the apparent weakness of the Kantian idea of human dignity uh, that was certainly present in my paper, but I'm beginning to rethink uh, that that maybe is a little bit more flexible. It's not just about protecting uh, life, um, at least in the German debate, the um, uh, right to a, to a dignified life has a higher status. Uh, it is a controversial uh, uh, um, a question and the uh, questions about the interpretation of the German constitution here. Uh, but um, overall, I would say that uh, the question of dignity is a, que- a question of dignity for all, for care, for care homes, for example, uh, not just about the protection of, of life, not just for the elderly middle class in European constitutional welfare states. Yeah, so some of these issues probably can be accommodated in the Kantian model. Uh, that there's going to be an unavoidable collision of of rights. Uh, so it's not you know libertarians uh, saying you know, here's liberty. This is the most important right. Uh, there are other ones, the right to life, uh, but but also the right to human dignity, uh, which could then be interpreted to be a dignified life, not just any kind of a, 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 a right uh, to 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 life. And you know, that well, to follow Habermas here, this is not just something that can be resolved through appeal to a legal precept, but requires uh, interpretation by, well, basically by citizens. And um, this raises fundamental questions uh, of, of, of democracy. Yeah, regarding your third point, um, yeah, you, you've mentioned yeah, with respect to agency, and I've brought that in as a critique of the Foucauldian position and Black Lives Matter. Uh, the, you know, 
other examples we can take of the um, current issue, but Black Lives Matter. But I think actually there are three things coming together here. Uh, there's, the, there's the pandemic, the health crisis. Uh, there's the ecological crisis. And there's, there's, there are clear connections between both of these. Uh, but there's also uh, the current situation of anti-racism and uh, uh, pr- protests for, for um, a wider conception of social justice. So I, I think really the interesting thing is the intersection uh, of uh, these movements, uh, the, the pandemic, the ecological cri- cri- crisis, and the Black Lives Matter movements, just to take that as, uh, as a prominent example. And the pandemic, um, the whole pandemic issue uh, is now politicized in because of, you know, sort of something like white people, uh, because of far higher rates, it's fairly clear that there are far, far higher rates of infection and mortality among non-white people and, uh, and uh, minorities. Uh, so it does uh, bring to the fore that question. But yeah, much of the response uh, to the pandemic is conservative, you know, protecting safety, restoring safe, safety uh, in some shape or form, yeah, to protect a way of life that we want to uh, return. Lockdown populations want to return to the life that they uh, have lost. Welfare states are, as you say, protective. It's not in their nature to be transformative. But uh, the point I think I'm trying to make is that by bringing together the three crises, uh, the, some of the injustices and the systemic problems of the current situation uh, might be addressed. And I think that's the only way that any kind of uh, progressive politics uh, will be possible, will be true, the bringing together uh, of these things. And in the longer perspective of history, all major societal transformations generally have been a coming together of of a number of different forces, not just uh, one. Uh, So there must be an event, the pandemic is an event, uh, and you, you need... Uh, social agitation or agency, uh, the Black Lives Matter would be you know, a pertinent example today. And you also need new interpretations uh, of the situation. Uh, so quite a number of things have to come together. Uh, that would be my response to your uh, very good questions, which I thank you. Thank you, Jenner. Uh, thank you, Sonia, as well. The, I, think, I think this is a... a a good time to maybe open open the floor for questions. We already have a few questions. Uh, I just want, want one quick thing that I that I uh, should mention for those of you interested in engaging uh, further with uh, uh, Professor Valanti's paper. You can find it in the Lex website uh, where you can download it for free, uh, a PDF version of the document. So do go ahead and do that. Uh, yeah. So as I said, I will I will uh, uh, now open the, the floor to questions. We already have a few. Generally, is it okay if I just uh, uh, read them read them to you uh, on behalf of the people asking, of course. Yep. All right. So uh, the first question that we have is from uh, Mithili Mishra, uh, a law student currently in India, and she asks, uh, or he asks, I don't know. Uh, Thank you for the talk. It was very insightful. Uh, I noticed one very important political philosophy missing from the discussion, and that is feminism. 
And I was wondering what your ideas on a feminist understanding of uh, the COVID-19 event would be. Uh, sure. Do you want? Well, eh? I, I, my, my, thank you. My initial response would be, uh, in terms of my six political philosophies, obviously there's a, a limit to the number of um, uh, political philosophies one uh, can, can invoke in a paper in a talk. I suppose I would locate it in part, as part of the, uh, the fifth um, uh, group of radical uh, uh, positions, and um, I, I well, I, I, I can only say that that, of course, fear would surely have to highlight the uh, inequalities, the social inequalities uh, of well, just taking the instance of lockdown, which of course isn't the only uh, uh, dimension of the pandemic, but you know, for societies just coming out of lockdowns, uh, it's quite clearly. Um, uh, a very significant one, where the home has been um, fundamentally transformed into a place of many other activities of work. Uh, and I, I think, yeah, it would have to be, uh, it would have to be uh, brought into, into the perspectives. Uh, also with respect to the notion uh, of uh, human dignity, I, I, I don't think human dignity is just about the protection of uh, what again we would call bare life, uh, of of just the um, elderly, the, those over seventy five, who are most susceptible to, uh, to 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 the disease, the COVID disease, uh, but it raises a whole load of other uh, social issues. Uh, Sonia has commented on some of these, and I suppose these would have to be. I mean, I, I've read horrific cases in in Spain of um, murders in in the home of husbands murdering wives or partners. Uh, so this whole dimension of domestic abuse, you know, all of these issues uh, would, would have to be brought into the picture. Um, so, yeah, that would be my initial response to, to that question. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have then a, a second question from uh, Don Valedor, uh, a, an LSE visitor, uh, currently in New York, and they ask... Uh, uh, it's a couple of questions, fairly, fairly brief though. Uh, the first concerns uh, digital te technology and state control, uh, which have helped uh, many countries monitor and fight the pandemic, but where experts have also raised concerns about increased authoritarian control and state surveillance, right? So whether you agree that this has indeed been, been the case or whether that worry, yes. experts' well, worry is legitimate. Yeah. And the, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And the second question is, uh, what, what your thoughts are on Noam Chomsky's assertion that the pandemic has only exposed the suicidal tendencies of capitalism? And, yeah, what do you think the role of uh, corporatocracy is in all of this? Yeah, thank you. I, I don't know Chomsky's um, intervention here, but I'm going to uh, look for it. And perhaps if you can find my email, you might um, uh, send me the reference. I'm going to look it up. That's... Um, yeah, a, a relevant perspective in the paper, I, I make some comments uh, with regard to uh, the new developments in technology that um, are, are being um, exacerbated uh, by the current situation. Uh, I, I suppose my initial response was, you know, kind of again, you know, this is all about uh, surveillance, status surveillance, but I, I think it's more complicated uh, than that, and of course, you know, corporate capitalism is there um, enhancing, you know, technologies. 
Uh, but um, these technologies are, are not only instruments of uh, authoritarianism, and uh, I think it's impossible uh, to say that, you know, that it's one or the other. Many things come together. It depends uh, on how democracies uh, use those, um, th those technologies. Uh, these technologies in themselves are not all, all necessarily uh, instruments of control, uh, but they can be instruments of uh, societal transformation, and they can also be, you know, we're using Zoom now, I, I think, you know, um, a good way to communicate, given that we can't otherwise communicate. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not only an instrument of um, authoritarian control. Um, though the direction of my paper uh, is that probably in, in the final analysis, uh, there will be uh, more and more um, forms of digital uh, control. Uh, the question ultimately is how can these be uh, democratized? You know, we're witnessing the democratization at the moment of public space. And uh, that, I think, uh, can go in many different directions. But the solution isn't simply a lament for, for the past. I guess would be my rather um, two-sided response to uh, the question. Thanks. Uh, yeah, we have uh, uh, several more. I'll, I'll, I'll follow up with the next one in the order. So, uh, Gillian there. Uh, former diplomat and trustee of various charities. Uh, they ask, in a crisis like the pandemic, most citizens would expect the government to act in an authoritarian fashion in terms of curtailing some freedoms uh, mm -hmm. for a limited period. As long as freedoms of speech and the ability to question is not curtailed and the government is held to account. But in a democracy, should this be done with all party agreements so that it is clearly a national response and not an instrument to pursue individual party uh, individual parties' political agendas? Uh, yeah. Sorry, could I try to understand that question uh, more precisely? Um, yeah. Please. Uh, at least the first part of it. Yeah, so I... I uh, you would expect um, governments to act in authoritative uh, fashion in, in curtailing freedoms. Well, to, yes, to some extent. I, I, I think uh, uh, the person asking the question, uh, Gillian, there, uh, at least in the way they wrote it, right, it seems they seem to imply that some authoritarian uh, uh, measures, right, are to be expected, right? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, at least some minimal ones. Mm. Uh, but then the question is, but w whether this should uh, be done in terms of an all-party agreement so that it is it is part yeah, of yeah, a I, national I, yeah, agenda I, or whether it should be done along party. Yeah, I, I understand. The, um, yeah, I think, well, the, the um, I suppose my, my response to that question uh, is less... Um, what, what should be the case then to observe that the nature of a pandemic is that decisions, political decisions and medical decisions, all kinds of decisions have to be made very rapidly. And that's not consistent uh, with democracy, uh, which you know, requires, um, you know, as the uh, uh, person Gillian uh, uh, has said, requires more... Um, more consultation with those concerned, but that's 
um, not not possible. For example, you know, the British government has been criticised, and I think rightly criticised for being slow to act. This case too with many countries and Spain uh, too. Uh, but how long can they sit around consulting with people? Uh, uh, so the the, ob- the objectivity uh, of the situation is such that uh, our received understanding of democracy uh, is questioned. Uh, maybe a way to uh, think more about this is what if the situation were to reoccur? Uh, what uh, maybe democracies need to think more about uh, the situations in which they might likely to find themselves in the future, uh, where um, for all kinds of reasons, possibly the ecological catastrophe, uh, the reoccurrence of the pandemic, and there's you know likely to be many more uh, because of ecological. Uh, transformation, upsetting um, particular forms of wildlife from which many of the um, viruses apparently come from. Uh, so, we, you know, governments may need to make quick decisions, assuming they're making good decisions and not making, uh, say, decisions or taking advantage of, of, of a crisis to, you know, the, you know um, to pass emergency legislation that doesn't need to be passed, for example. Uh, so I, I think... Uh, the objectivity of the problem uh, is part of the problem here. And democratic theory may need to revisit many of its uh, its presuppositions. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I'll. I'll so that with, with, with the following question is from Ayla Gol. Uh, they. They thank both of you, and uh, they also seem to want to follow up on uh, Sonia's closing remark uh, on uh, the relation between the 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 philosophical the philosophical standpoints you discussed, uh, Gerard, and uh, uh, recent protest following uh, George Floyd's uh, yeah. uh, death. Uh, The question specifically is, uh, what can we expect about the role of the state and good governments on the historical production of racism that does not reflect the human dignity at all? Um, yes, um, thank you. Well, I think I, I can here um, only re- uh, reiterate uh, what uh, I've previously said in response to um, Sonia's comments, that um, the notion of human dignity uh, c- could I think has the capacity to be broadened to uh, include a wider um, range of um, of conditions of situations that is per- that is pertinent to a wider uh, range of social issues, not just as it's I think kind of naturally assumed to be about you know um, you know to die a dignified death or just. Not, not to be allowed to die, that the state has to protect life. But for now, it seems the states, states everywhere, liberal democracies and dictatorships have just decided they're going to save lives. And it doesn't matter what, um, you know, what kind of life, uh, they, there's a selection of lives in question. Now, I think that's a too limited understanding of the notion of human dignity, as I've Um, try to illustrate with respect to the um, German debate on a wider conception of human dignity that might uh, follow from 
a reading of the German constitution and, and its famous declaration in, in the first article of human dignity. Uh, so um, uh, perhaps in terms of moral and political philosophy, the notion of human dignity uh, is uh, what states need to um, to um, give more centrality to. And that's, that seems to be uh, common uh, to you know, at least two of the big problems of the present day, the ecological, uh, the ecological crisis, the pandemic crisis, and uh, the whole problem of uh, racism that's now been opened up by, by um, uh, uh, George uh, Floyd's uh, death. So the latter two uh, do seem to me to have uh, something to say about the, uh, the, the problematic of, of human dignity. Thank you. Where is the critique? Am I speaking? Where is the critique of the current situation, as opposed to a vindication of uh, state policies? Is what I wanted to add. Thank you. Thank you, General. So I, I uh, I'm going to jump in with a question I had because it's it's uh, directly related to to this. Uh, so when when you were discussing the. Uh, the Kantian perspective, per perspective. Sorry, uh, specifically when you are drawing the the contrast between the utilitarian approach and the Kantian approach, right, yeah. which is towards towards the end of your discussion of the of the Kantian, right? Uh, you you seem to be opposing dignity and security uh, in 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 the paper, especially this comes comes out, I think. Uh, but what I wanted to say, and I think it's related to something Sonia brought up and then uh, uh, Ayla's mm -hmm. question just now, right? Uh, it seems to me like by by dignity, Kant, Kant doesn't solely mean or uniquely mean something like being eleg eligible for intensive care, right? Uh, in the metaphysics yeah. of morals. Uh, in the metaphysics of morals, Kant speaks of dignity as the property of rational beings that prevents them from seeing themselves merely as things, right? So basically from sort of uh, uh, objectifying themselves, so to speak. Uh, and I, I think I mean, this is specifically in uh, uh, page 420 of the metaphysics of morals uh, from the Academia Oscar. And... Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you take dignity to be such a formal uh, uh, and abstract property, I think it, it could then be constructed, right, to entail security as opposed to something that opposes yeah. it, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and in this sense, right, entail also the responsibility of the state, right, to do everything it can to help people in care homes, people with mental illnesses, victims of domestic violence, etc., right, uh, make do the the responsibility of the state to help these people is also sort of entailed by, by that dignity, if it is constructed in the right way, that Kantian dignity, right? And I just wanted to, to sort of say, yes. do, do you agree with this? Uh, and if so, would that mean that the Kantian approach then might not be so ill-conceived? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I said, well, thank you for that. I will have to, um, I'm going to um, look into um, that's um, reading of uh, Cantor specifically that you, you've mentioned. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, it, it sounds 
plausible. In the paper, uh, I, um, I refer to uh, the wider concept of uh, human security, and uh, I, I refer to, to, to that as um, um, perhaps a way of critiquing a, a narrow conception of, of, of human uh, security. It's maybe a wider, more uh, technical, philosophical question that I uh, prefer not to go into at the moment, whether that's compatible with uh, a Kantian position. I, my feeling is that it is compatible with it, and I wouldn't want to uh, push that too far. Uh, I, I um, have um, um, some affection for a Kantian moral uh, uh, philosophy. It's often seen as a position that's kind of divorced from political realities and can you know, whole moral thought, as you quite well know, uh, came from, you know, comes from within, and it's not always very clear what the political implications of it are. But if one broadens it out in this way, uh, it can encompass a wider notion of, of security. So perhaps a way uh, forward in that direction is the notion of, uh, of human security, and that have been many dimensions to it, as in the United Nations um, article on human security. Thank you, thank you, Jenna. Uh, yeah, so I I just got through the just so the reference uh, uh, that the, the reference where you can find Jared's paper right uh, is in the Lex L E Q S uh, website. Uh, you can download it from there. Sorry, people are asking in the in the yeah. in the floor about that. So, uh, sometimes, oh sorry, uh, yeah. sometimes it's easier to search for keywords. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you you could also do that. Uh, yeah, uh, but it, it should be straightforward in the in the Lex website. You know, uh, uh, LSE Lex. If you type that into into Google, you should be able to find it. Uh, uh, speaking of Lex, we have we have a, a question by Vasilis, uh, 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 another one of the of the another member of the editorial board of the Lex uh, uh, Journal, who asks: uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic may have possible long term effects in at least three areas: citizen state relations, uh, by which he means liberties, rights, etc., citizen consumer behavior and by which means socializing consumption patterns, et cetera, and employment relations slash the organization of work, teleworking, labor replacement, occupational shifts, et cetera. While the lecture has focused on the, f uh, on the first of these, yeah, namely A, uh, sorry, on the first of these three aspects, uh, Vasilis asks, how do you think these three areas rank in terms of importance and would you see these three areas as interrelated, right? And if so, in what ways? And he's thinking in particular of whether different approaches or responses to the first, right? Uh, uh, yeah. The first point may have an impact, uh, yeah. the prevailing responses to the other yeah. two points. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, that, that's, of course, a, a major sociological question and... Um, uh, perhaps to, taking advantage of my audience, I, I may take the liberty of saying I'm editing a, a book called P Pandemic, Society and Politics, Critical Reflections on the COVID-19 Crisis uh, that will be published by De Gutter, uh, uh in paperback and in uh, electronic form, probably beginning of, uh, of next year, with 15 fantastic chapters by, uh, by, by uh, major political sociologists 
um, which yeah, are different ways of addressing some of these questions. Uh, and yeah, I, I suppose my 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 response at the moment is that that you know that now there's the pandemic and probably the social, economic, and political consequences of that will uh, outweigh the pandemic. As well, to make just a general uh, remark that you know es- uh, escapes uh, a lot of attention in the media is that you know throughout human history there's been you know one pandemic after the other, and maybe what's slightly different about this pandemic, at least in Western societies in Europe and you know the so-called Western world, whatever that is, but basically West Europe and North America uh, since. Since 1919, there hasn't been a major uh, pandemic that's led to uh, such societal transformation as this one. There have been pandemics in uh, in earlier in history. You know, the numbers who have died uh, as a result so far of the pandemic in relation to earlier pandemics have not has not been significant. And there's maybe um, something to be said here about the proportionality of of the state's response uh, uh, to to the um, pandemic in historical perspective, but yeah, so I, I I suspect, and you know, not really wanting to predict the future, but my my guess is that the economic consequences will probably be the uh, most um, significant. Uh, I don't think that uh, that capitalism is going to be overthrown. I mean, there's the, the um, uh, famous phrase, and I always like to quote of Frederick Jemison, that we're more likely to see the end of the world before the end of um, capitalism. Um, capitalism ha- trans- has a capacity to respond to all sorts of crises and challenges. Uh, unfortunately, one of the key questions, of course, will a more human or social kind of capitalism uh, result um, from the current situation? Uh, I wouldn't want to try to answer that, but uh, I, I, I suspect that the organisation of work, teleworking, um, as um, Veris has uh, mentioned, you know, that would be uh, one transformation, transformation of the home, where um, it's not just working at home, but uh, uh, what is only working at home, um, uh, to, to use that expression. Uh, so, yeah, so work will uh, quite possibly uh, uh, be transformed with the digitalization of many forms of work that that is not a, an unlikely uh, outcome. I think that's probably going to be more significant than uh, the, um, the the transformations with respect to um, to um, uh, rights. Uh, that, that's my guess. And the other one uh, he mentioned, he mentioned um, a third one or the three areas, what was the third? Oh, consumption, socialising. Uh, yes, I'm sure that's also going to be um, uh, something that will also uh, um, a, a lasting outcome of the current situation will be, um, you know, for example, just to take a trivial example of uh, social distancing in some shape or form will be around for quite some time. Uh, so these might be um, uh, long-lasting outcomes uh, of the current situation that go beyond uh, simply authoritarianism. Thank you, Jaron. Uh, I, I'll, 
uh, keep going with the questions that we have in the in the chat. I'm not sure we'll manage to cover them all, but uh, we'll see. So we have uh, Yasid Sada uh, from Erasmus University in Palestine, uh, and they ask. Um, so two two relatively relatively uh, short questions. The first one is, uh, you know, they state. Western countries in their responses to the crisis have combined more than one approach at the same time. So um, uh, why, why wasn't this brought up and what do you have to say about this sort of idea? And the second question that uh, Yazid Sara asks is uh, about the responses of the countries and how they have diversified in terms of the different approaches, right? So how do you see the response of EU institutions and the World Bank along the approaches that, that you mentioned? Uh, yes, I mean, that would be, um, that's an important question if one were to do this properly as opposed to, you know, a paper quickly written. Um, one would have to uh, empirically investigate um, different um, situations, different uh, countries. And it's, um, I wouldn't want to say these six philosophies are identified or kind of ideal types or, you know, the elements of a typology. Uh, I... I uh, but yeah, it's inevitable that some of these will combine. I, I've said uh, that th these are present both underpinning uh, policies, but also as critiques of the policies. So the Kantian position uh, is um, is underpinning policies, but is, is also a critique of the policies. And and yeah, I did mention, I, I think at least in the written paper, that what I uh, that nudge nudge theory. Uh, is compatible, it seems to me, with utilitarianism. And one could find instances uh, of both that became, um, I was quite conscious of, uh, of that when I wrote the paper. And also, Nudge theory, I, I did say this, I think, uh, is what one could see it uh, in, in Foucauldian terms as, um, you know, as, as, as a, a policy uh, aimed to get people to desire to do uh, what. Um, what is supposed to be good for them or what the state wants. Uh, so, yes, the, some of these are uh, compatible. Clearly, the, the you know, position represented by Zizek is not compatible uh, with uh, some of these. And it's well, a fundamentally different perspective about the transformation of, uh, of, of capitalism. Um, perhaps another point with respect to this question, which I think is more of an empirical question, uh, uh, really it's not something that can be analytically answered, is that uh, these positions, not all of them, uh, but certainly uh, the first three, uh, I'd have to think about the other ones, but the first three are normative uh, positions, well, it's quite clearly a normative position. And yeah, I, I, I maybe I need to think more about about it, but I, I think the Kantian position and the utilitarian position are not really compatible. Uh, maybe they are they are they are up to a point, as in you know, the philosophy of John Rawls. There's you know a certain uh, overlap there, but Rawls is quite clear that his position is not utilitarian. Uh, so yeah, there are the the, the, the um, different Western. So that, that's with regard to the positions and the degree to which they may be or may not be compatible. And that is a further, as I said, an empirical question, how these are born 
out in you know the policies of different countries. Uh, in in Germany, I mentioned the country of Kant, not too surprisingly, given the nature of the German constitution, uh, which bears a Kantian influence. The Kantian position is more present there, uh, but it's not the only position there. The uh, the British one, the Dutch uh, position, the Swedish position, uh, seems to me to be a kind of utilitarianism. Uh, maybe that's not too surprisingly. England, the home of uh, utilitarianism. Uh, so, yeah, and your, your other question, um, uh, but to be honest, I must say, I, 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 I don't know. I would like to know. Uh, in fact, I um, have tried to find out. Uh, perhaps I didn't try hard enough, but I, I don't know what the response of the EU is. It seems to be a response that's uh, not, not satisfactory uh, uh, um, in, in general, but I... I um, I'm not quite sure uh, what kind of normative positions underlie uh, EU um, um, policy making in this whole area. It's something that perhaps we'll uh, have to investigate in the not too uh, distant future. And yeah, the World Bank. Uh, to be honest, I don't. I don't know. I haven't looked in, into that. But uh, I suppose the the point of my paper is to try to show how these uh, six philosophies and of course, there are others. Someone has mentioned feminism, uh, entail normative positions uh, with respect to the ethical and political responsibilities uh, of the state and other state institutions as a way of um, um, critiquing and analysing the current situation. And clearly, a lot more needs to be done than what I've done uh, in, in my paper uh, especially as the situation uh, changes in the uh, coming months. Thanks, Jaron. Um, we we have a little bit of time left. I just want to point out I have pasted uh, a link to Jaron's uh, paper in the chat. Uh, so if you go to the chat at the bottom of your screen and click on that, uh, you should be able to see a link to Jaron's paper. Uh, I think Ayla was the one that was uh, asking me about it, but I just posted it for everyone. Uh, hopefully that uh, helps. Uh, we have, I mean, we won't be able to cover all of the questions we have left. Uh, I There is one that is maybe a bit related to what you were talking about now, it comes from Suni Singh, uh, uh, who is an incoming student to the LSC. They ask, uh, how do you see the political philosophies you discussed uh, being reflected in terms of foreign oh, yeah. policy, right? uh, in terms of foreign policy, uh, uh, because you seem to have dealt with it mostly or primarily in terms of domestic policy. Yeah. Uh, so that is that is uh, Suni's yeah. question. Yeah. Th- uh, thank you for uh, for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, mean, I think a feature of the current situation, uh, a regrettable feature of the current situation, is that. Uh, it has reinforced um, a, a trend uh, or a tendency towards nationalization. Uh, and I, I um, think uh, that if, if there was, you know, so, someone did comment um, uh, in response to my paper that there's perhaps um, a certain political philosophy, that's fascism or some kind of fascism. 
uh, the, the, that I'm not sure who would be a representative of, of of that, but I think it's there. Um, and well, that would be quite a clear um, other position. The, yeah, um, the country. Well, you know, we, we've talked a little bit. Uh, Sonia has raised important questions about the nature of safety, and I, I suppose the immediate and natural um, response uh, to any concern with safety is something that's uh, within the domain of the of the state, and that would tend, though not necessarily, have to lead to um, uh, a politics of national closure, but it certainly doesn't uh, provide a, a basis for some kind of um, ethos of cosmopolitanism or internationalism. And yeah, I, I think that's what we're seeing in the current situation, a politics of closure, uh, reaction to, uh, to cosmopolitanism. And uh, many of these uh, uh, political philosophies that I've identified um, maybe point in that direction. But then, you know, the, the Kantian position, uh, I've written extensively about cosmopolitanism, and Kant was... You know, it was associated with human dignity, and you know, but also, of course, is the champion of cosmopolitanism, the rights of the stranger. Uh, so I think that that really is a separate question, and I think that these philosophies are much broader, more um, normative. At least the first three of them, normative positions. Uh, it's possible that uh, one could approach foreign, ne national foreign policies uh, from the perspective of political philosophy. Of course, one can um, uh, easily uh, do that and uh, look at it um, maybe through uh, the lens of a politics of closure or more open politics of cosmopolitanism. But for the moment, we're definitely seeing uh, one of closure. All right. Uh, thank you, Gerard. We, we, we're uh, out of time now. Uh, oh. Yeah. So uh, thanks, everyone, for, for uh, having joined us. Uh, thank you, Gerard, for the, for the talk. It's, it's been a great pleasure to have, to, have, uh, the, the, to have you give the talk. Thank you, Sonia, as well. It's been a great pleasure as well. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Chris Bell, Sonia, and the participants for their uh, really good questions. I enjoy those questions very much.